When Fly By Night premiered in 2020, the first four episodes featured the story of Lexington narcotics cop turned narcotic smuggling pilot, Drew Thornton. Now, nearly 38 years since his death in a Knoxville, Tennessee driveway, Thornton's story resonates not only with those who remember the mysterious circumstances of his death, but with new audiences that still find his story compelling. In this episode, we'll bring you additional information that wasn't included in the show in 2020, including the memories of a childhood friend. You'll also hear from the producer-director of a new network documentary on the Thornton smuggling operation that just premiered. He'll share what he learned in the production of the show. And in a fly-by-night exclusive, and in his first interview since the death of Drew Thornton, you'll hear the first-hand recollections of a Lexington police detective who served with Thornton. Stay tuned for this episode of Fly-by-Night. Andrew Carter Thornton's story remains the strange and tragic tale of a boy who grew up in a respected Kentucky family, went to good schools, was wounded while serving as a paratrooper in the Army, became a police officer, a lawyer, and a pilot. And then something caused Thornton to use some of those skills to become a leader in one of the most prolific drug smuggling organizations of the 1980s. Since the early episodes of Fly By Night aired, the story of Drew Thornton still draws audiences. And this year, a Hollywood movie that was very, very loosely based on the last night of his life has already earned over $75 million. That movie was Cocaine Bear, a very broad horror-slash-comedy film that simply uses the fact that there was a night when a drug-smuggling pilot threw bags of cocaine overboard as he passed over a forest and that some of the cocaine was ingested by an unfortunate black bear. At that point, the film's story takes a sharp turn from reality. The simple fact is, the bear overdosed and died, to be found later along with some of the uneaten cocaine. The real story is far more complex and intriguing than the comedic farce of the movie. The life story of Drew Thornton speaks to how someone can transform themselves into a new person. From being a respected member of his hometown to becoming an international drug smuggler. And in the process, becoming almost unrecognizable to old friends and associates. With the advantages of growing up in a hard-working and successful family, and with his intelligence and determination, Thornton could have traveled the expected path that would someday end in those reflective moments when people talk about a life well-lived. But instead, his was a life that ended with his shattered body in a dirt driveway with his partially open parachute surrounding him. And the cargo he carried to his death was weapons, money, and cocaine. Most people simply become more mature versions of themselves as they grow from child to young adult. Few become markedly different people, as did Drew Thornton. But sometimes, their hints and foreshadowing as a person begins a dramatic transformation. And a good place to start with Drew Thornton are his early years, especially the years remembered by someone who was witness to the beginnings of Thornton's impressive change. Rab Hagen was a childhood friend of Drew Thornton's. They attended the same private school, and Hagen is careful to say they were friends, not going as far as to say they were good friends. He recalls that he and Drew shared the growing pains of junior high, including sleepovers at each other's homes, where they commiserated on their first crushes on girls. But first, 
Rab Hagen recalls the time when he first met Drew Thornton. We were in the sixth grade. Uh, it was Cobb Ryan's Riding Academy, which was near Bluegrass Field Airport. Drew was a somewhat awkward, slightly overweight guy who uh, he loved horses and he was fearless, but he was not athletic. Later on, I bet was we were in the sixth grade. Later on, we were in junior high together in seventh, eighth, and ninth grade at Sayre School. He was uh, eager to be friendly, but he was somewhat awkward. But he, as I said, he, he was fearless. He was good around horses. One of the most powerful memories Rab Hagen has of Drew Thornton during their school years may shed some light on why Drew began to change into a more confident, assertive young man. It had to do with the public rejection that had a strong impact on Drew Thornton. Drew and I were both in the seventh grade. He had We each had crushes on uh, girls that were a year ahead of us. Drew had a huge crush on her. He wanted to give her a Valentine's present. So he bought this large heart-shaped box of chocolate candy. And I was somewhat taken aback when I saw it. Uh, I asked him, I said, what is this for? And he said, this is who told, he told me who this who it was for. I was a little bit surprised. I didn't know how he planned to give it to her. Apparently, he wanted to slip it inside of her mother's car when her mother came to pick her up. The next thing I remember, uh, she was walking up to me, uh, holding the box of candy and saying, Do, did I know where Drew was? And she said, this has just gone on too far. At least one other classmate remembers this episode because we related it a few years ago when he was visiting Lexington. I don't know exactly if they were ever face-to-face. I do know that Drew was very depressed afterwards, that he put a lot of thought into this, and it meant a lot to him, and it was rejected. It was, I'm sure, a painful experience. Anything athletic, Drew was not adept at. He was not good at catching a fly ball. He was not good at catching a football. He was not good in any of the sort of track and field events that we had. And he was not a graceful rider. Most of our riding instructors were former cavalry officers. We were taught to maintain tight legs, tight knees into the saddle. We were taught to uh, sit up straight unless we were galloping. Much of this a type of riding requires a certain amount of athletic ability. But Drew was loose. He was loose in the saddle. He hunched over in the saddle. His favorite horse at, at the riding academy was a, a thoroughbred off the track named Colpin, who was very fast. And Drew was fearless on this horse, but he was not graceful. I rode Colpin a few times, and, and Colpin could outright fly. Most thoroughbreds could. Drew loved Colpin because he was an an ex-race horse. And Drew had no fear. He would go into jumps fearlessly, uh, but not gracefully. Sometimes he'd kind of get left behind, uh, which means he really wasn't with the horse when the horse lofted over the fence. But he always managed to stay on. And uh, he he was never fearful. He was not fearful around horses or on them. When Thornton left the exclusive Sayre School for Bourbon County High School, he and Hagen didn't see each other as often. And on one occasion when they did, it was obvious to Rab Hagen that his old friend Drew was starting to become a new version of himself. As I recall, he was actually at Sayre for the ninth grade as well. 
Uh, and then he went to Bourbon County High School. Uh, so at that point, I lost contact with him. But I do remember running into him at various times, I guess when we were both in, you know, the, the following year, 10th grade. And at that point, he was working on his his sort of macho persona. And I think he had one year at Bourbon County High School, and then he went to Swanee, which is where he met Bradley Bryant. Uh, and he was still working on that kind of image. He was mentioning how he was a lot tougher now that he'd gone to Bourbon County High and was interacting with all the, the, public, uh, the public school uh, kids from Bourbon County. He seemed to be working on it at that point. He still, he still was kind of awkward. He still was a little bit overweight and not yet taken on the image that he later, later acquired. It was uh, age 15 and 16 that he's really started to change. Years would pass before the two friends ran into each other again. This time, after Thornton had not only been to a military school, but had then enlisted in the Army, served as a paratrooper, and had seen action in combat. And it was a summer party, as I recall, and uh, I asked him what, what he was doing, and he mentioned that he had, had come back uh, from, uh, from the Dominican Republic. I think he'd actually been wounded, and uh, I was a little bit surprised. I didn't, I didn't know that he was no longer in school. And asked him, uh, you know, what that experience was like, and he said, "Well, it was, uh, it, it was, it was a combat experience." And he brightened up when I asked him what kind of rifle he carried, and he told me it was the M16. Uh, and he said, "This is incredible," something to that effect. And he also related when he had actually killed uh, an assailant. Uh, he said that the uh, he hit him in the side of the and the side of the shoulder, and it, to it tore his whole shoulder off. I was, and he just looked almost gleeful when he was telling me this. Just before Rab Hagen left Lexington to work in New Jersey, he and Thornton crossed paths again, and it would be for the last time. According to Hagen, by then Drew Thornton's transformation had become complete. Before I'd left, I remember running into Drew once at, at Keeneland and speaking to him, and he speaking very curtly, acknowledging me, but that was about it. And I do recall his physical appearance at that point. But I was amazed, looking back on it, that he accomplished all that he did. He physically transformed himself. He, 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 was, he was slim. He was muscular. He, uh, he discarded the, the thick glasses and started wearing contacts. He uh, learned karate. He became a pilot. He became a skydiver. He went back to school at EKU and went on to law school. I don't know how he found the time to do all that he did or how he found the discipline, but it was like a sheer force of will that he just simply transformed himself. Our next guest is the director and executive producer of a documentary called Cocaine Bear, The True Story a Peacock TV documentary that covers the life and death of Drew Thornton, focusing on how he worked with his co-conspirators to create a large-scale smuggling operation based in Lexington, Kentucky. If that sounds familiar to listeners of this podcast, 
it should. And full disclosure, your host appears in the documentary. Robert Palumbo is an award-winning producer and director with a long list of impressive credits, especially in the documentary genre. Based on the production team's extensive research to prepare for the show, Palumbo interviewed some of the same law enforcement officers who appear in Fly by Night, and he also was able to interview others who did not. Here's Robert Palumbo on what surprised him as he learned about Drew Thornton and why he finds the story of Drew Thornton so fascinating after so many years have passed. Before I was approached with the idea of this film, I had no foreknowledge of Drew Thornton or the bear who died of cocaine overdose in Georgia. Um, I had never heard of it before. I was approached originally with a central question uh, to explore in the documentary, which was, how did a black bear in the woods of Georgia which died of a cocaine overdose. How was that bear connected to a Kentucky blue blood uh, who had jumped to his death from the sky and ended up in a driveway in Knoxville, Tennessee, next to a bag of 75 pounds of cocaine? And so that immediately piqued my interest. But then as I delved more deeply into the story and discovered more about the man in the driveway, I just became more and more fascinated by this story. At first, I assumed the story would be a simple one uh, about a, a drug smuggling deal gone bad, and some drugs were dropped in the wrong place in the woods, and the connection between these two elements of the story would be easy to explain. However, that's not what I discovered as I delved more deeply into the story. I discovered a story of increasing complexity. It was, it was like peeling an onion to get to the middle, to get to the middle of who Drew Thornton was and how he came to drop a bag of cocaine in those woods of North Georgia. I think this story is especially interesting because of its epic and often almost mythic qualities. Drew Thornton is described often as a larger-than-life character. I think if larger-than-life means someone who exists or existed outside of our normal vision of what life is on this earth, and I think that that's true. I think that the Drew Thornton story is different from other true crime stories that I've been involved in, uh, in that Drew Thornton existed in a kind of Neverland of reality. His, his life, uh, as I discovered, was just a series of contradictions. He did not come from any kind of criminal background. I had difficulty understanding the turn from this respectable background into uh, at first being a crooked cop and then into essentially living the rest of his life as a criminal. Yeah, he does, he does not check the boxes uh, of most criminals that I've uh, researched and made films about He's someone who existed outside of a fully understandable timeline and also outside of a fully understandable set of motivations. With the resources of a large network behind him, Robert Palumbo was able to explore how Drew Thornton and friends were able to build what was sometimes called the company. And after weeks of on-location production in Kentucky, Tennessee, 
North Carolina, and Georgia in months of post-production, his documentary helps bring a fresh perspective to an old story. I think I was most surprised by the willingness to glamorize Drew Thornton and his life as a soldier of fortune. Even from law enforcement, there was more of a sense of wonder uh, about this man who, you know, landed in a driveway with a watch that shot tear gas. Um, you know, th- there's there's the sense that he is living outside of reality. And I think I was most surprised by how we all kind of accept that. And the people involved in the story were in awe of him in a strange way. I think the reason why I was surprised by that was that, you know, as you dig deeper into Thornton and his background and who he was, you you just have these questions about whether he really was that soldier of fortune. He really was that badass guy. And I, I'm, I'm not really sure about that. So I guess I'm a bit surprised that we all kind of accept what other people say about the story and we, we still don't really know so much about who Drew Thornton really was. When we return, for the first time since the death of Drew Thornton in 1985, in an exclusive interview, you'll hear Drexel Neal, a retired Lexington Police Department detective who worked with Drew Thornton. For the nearly 38 years since the night of Drew Thornton's death, Many of the police officers who served with Thornton have refused interview requests by writers, TV reporters, and this podcast during its early production in 2020, citing the fact that at least one case was still open and feeling that coverage from that time often painted the Lexington police in an undeserved negative light. They had a reluctance to go on the record about their interactions with Thornton. That was also the case with Detective Drexel Neal in early 2020 he did agree to take part in an off-the-record interview with Fly By Night, an interview that helped provide valuable background information for this podcast. But recently, Drexel Neal agreed to a recorded interview with Fly By Night, his first in the year since Thornton's death. He begins with his first memory of working with Drew Thornton. At that time, Lexington was a fairly small department, just a little over 200 people. So uh, the detectives... uh, and everybody was in one building. I first met him. He was uh, assigned to night detectives sometime around 1969 or 70, just as I was coming on the department. The first narcotics unit was started. It was just a handful of guys, sergeant, four guys, a secretary. Thornton was assigned to that. In 1972, when I came to detectives, he was still in narcotics. At that time, there was a lot of federal grants available for police. And after the merger, uh, one of the first units they started was uh, the criminal intelligence unit. Thornton uh, was assigned to the criminal intelligence unit. And again, kind of like the name suggests, they weren't an enforcement unit. They linked with other departments sometime around 19, I'm going to say 1975, I was a sergeant of detectives. He was a, the detective decided intelligence. He, at that point, had decided to go to law school. He and I had gone to Eastern together 
and both graduated about the same time. I think we graduated with our BS in 1972. There was a, quite a few policemen that graduated. At that point, I remember he was had a, he had a leg injury. I don't remember what from, but he was assigned to work in detectives with me, and he basically was had to do desk duty. He worked uh, reviewing cases and reports and the things that could be done desk work. Uh, after his leg healed, he requested to go back to uniform patrol. And from 75 until late 76, maybe early 77, he was on patrol, volunteering for night shift and going to UK law school. Graduated, I think, 76 or 77, left the department. He never practiced the law uh, practice in Lexington. I don't remember ever seeing him in court much. Really never had much contact with him until the late 70s when they, Bradley Bryant and his crew first got come to the attention of law enforcement. Thornton was linked to the, They were linked to a, uh, an investigation out in California. I think they called it the China Lake investigation, but it involved Bryant's, uh, I believe his brother had stolen some military equipment. There were some other conspiracies involved, and they wound up indicting probably six or eight people. Uh, Bryant, his brother, Thornton, a couple other people that uh, were not policemen but were from Lexington area. That was when he first became, uh, it was pretty common knowledge by then that he was under the lookout of multiple agencies. There were some issues with the narcotic squad, some of their cases and their search warrants. There was rumors in the justice system that they may have been some rules and stuff, but nothing involving them smuggling or anything like that. That all didn't come to the attention until probably late 70s, 78 through there. Later on in the 90s, when Canaan was arrested, there was evidence and information given to the FBI that Thornton and Canaan had been involved in the plane uh, DC-3 at the airport. Uh, detectives in the department, state police, DEA, all of them involved in it. I think there was always a a question if he hadn't wasn't involved in it. But I don't think there was ever any evidence, or he was ever brought in and interviewed or anything like that. He had a ten year old beat up car, never wore flashy clothes or anything like that. Nothing to ever draw attention to him. He rented a little farmhouse out in the country. Uh, I mean. Uh, Nothing lavish or anything like that. Retired Detective Neal shares two stories of Drew Thornton's time with the Lexington Police Department and what he and other officers thought about Thornton's cultivated persona. The first story is about the time Thornton accidentally discharged his weapon and injured himself. And the second is of an incident when Thornton attempted to show off his martial arts skills with an embarrassing outcome. This is when I was a patrol officer, we would end our 
shift at, I believe it's probably eight o'clock at night. And there was an old bus terminal behind the police station. And that's where we, at that time we didn't have take home cards, drove to work and then took a pool car. Thornton was a detective. I, I don't know if he was a narcotics then. He probably would have been. But anyway, as he was getting out of his car, he had a 45 automatic. He was parked underneath the uh, concrete and steel uh, cover where the buses used to pull in. And uh, when the 45 fell out, it hit on the hammer. And they don't have a hammer block, so it discharged. And the bullet went up and hit the uh, ceiling came back down and struck him on the head. Didn't do much damage, but it did knock him out. And one of the patrol officers uh, found him beside his car. Uh, I don't even think he got treated at the hospital, but everybody talked about it for a few weeks. The The martial arts thing was, uh, he was at the uh, old intelligence unit and demonstrating kicks and everything. And I think he, if my memory's right, he kicked a, a bulletin board to show his high kick ability and run his foot through the wall. and They had to help him pull his foot out and everything. So again, it was one of those things that police make fun of each other. The, the general public until Denton's book came out and there was publicity about the alleged bluegrass conspiracy and the company and all that. Just being a detective or a sergeant in the department, you probably didn't know that what each officer was doing. I don't think until probably close to the end of his career that, uh, as an investigator, that we were became interested in him. And probably the general public and most uniform officers didn't know anything about him. He was, I guess, the best word. He was a bragger. He would tell people both in and out of the department of his martial arts skills. And I, I, I remember being a pilot, he did a lot of uh, flying, flying people around. I remember one time we were sitting around the detective bureau and everybody said, what did you do over the weekend? And Thornton said, well, uh, I flew to uh, Philadelphia and actress that was in, popular in the movies in the seventies. He had picked her and a couple of her roommates up and flown them around different places in the country for their break or whatever. And it was Brooke Shingham. He would drop things like that. You know, that's something most police officers don't get involved in. One of the police officers most associated with Drew Thornton is Bill Cannot, a co-conspirator in their smuggling operation. Drexel Neal disputes the widely shared stories of how long Bill Kanan actually worked in the narcotics division and as an undercover officer. Kanan came on two classes after me, which would have been sometime in 1971. And one of the things that the narcotics squad would do as the recruit class ended, they would try to select one or two people that were from out of town, had some trait that would make them good for undercover. I don't know what those characteristics or traits were, but Canan was selected to go undercover. The narcotics squad used him for about a period of, I don't know, three or four months. Uh, he worked undercover, and and I don't remember how many people they arrested, but it, it was 
fairly significant for the time. That was Canaan's only kind involved in narcotics. Tariq, Denton, or everything, he was a narcotics detective, which he never was. Matter of fact, he was never assigned to the detective. After doing the six months, they let him stay at plain clothes while they were making the arrest. Then he came back to my shift and worked on patrol with me from 71 through most of 72. It was 78 when he got in trouble over a, uh, an accident, off-duty accident, and he was suspended at sometime 79. He went before the council and, and was fired. So his whole undercover thing was a, just a few months. After Drew Thornton flew a cargo plane loaded with tons of marijuana into bluegrass field, and it was unloaded in broad daylight, suspicion grew that someone in the Lexington Police Department was there to provide cover. Now, Drexel Neal reveals that when Bill Kanan was required to tell the FBI of prior illegal activities when entering a plea agreement years later on unrelated drug charges, Kanan made a surprising admission about that day at the Lexington airport. When Kanan entered his plea in uh, probably 92 or 93, he agreed to speak about some of the things, told the FBI agents that uh, he and I can't remember who the other person was, were there with vans or trucks waiting for Thornton to land, and they downloaded the pot. Bill Kanan's admission of helping unload marijuana at the Lexington airport wasn't his only one in the statement he gave the FBI. The other came when he was asked about the strange shooting of Thornton one night as Thornton and others left the popular Merrick Inn after dinner. Here's a retired Detective Neal's memory of that night. I, I was actually on duty that night and got the, got the call as a detective commander that there had been a shooting involving uh, Thornton. His girlfriend and Henry Vance had been there eating dinner. And at the Merrick, you could either come in the front or you can go the back exit at that time. And they were exiting, I think it was the back exit, and Thornton was shot, fell to the ground. Somebody called 911, and he was transported to the hospital. I remember we interviewed him at the hospital, and then later on interviewed the girlfriend at Henry Vance back at the detective bureau. He had been shot, had a bulletproof vest on, or a bullet-resistant vest, had a quite a welt on his chest. I remember we took pictures of it at the hospital. His story was that he, they were leaving and some guy with a hood cover halls uh, shot him. And Vance and the girlfriend basically said the same thing. It immediately drew suspicion within the investigators because by this time his activities and with the China Lake thing was known. So I remember he was due to go back there out to California. The judge, they had like 16 defendants and they, they all thought they were going to go to prison. Later on, Kanan 
and his interview with the feds admitted that he had shot him with a wad cutter and then ran away from the sneak. And the object of it was that Thornton could go to China Lake with his attorney and say, look, I'm afraid of my life and I'm not, I'm not going to talk or do anything because they're going to kill me. It's impossible to say when or if the story of Drew Thornton and his co-conspirators will truly fade from memory. There is still talk of a serious telling of his story in a movie based on a well-known book. But as time takes its toll on those who worked with Thornton to create their large-scale smuggling operation, there'll be fewer and fewer first-person accounts available. One of those stories concerns the so-called mystery man who was aboard the plane the night of Thornton's last flight. By his own admission to a Knoxville newspaper, an account shared in episode four of this podcast, that man was Lexington-area martial arts expert Bill Leonard. If there's anyone who can clear up some of the theories of what actually happened around the middle of the night on September the 11th, 1985, it could be Bill Leonard. But to date, he's not responded to requests for comments or interviews. If Bill Leonard hears this podcast, Flabba Knight would welcome the opportunity to provide you with a forum to tell your side of what happened that night. The other remaining mystery is the tragic tale of the disappearance of Melanie Flynn. Only a few years ago, and based on what was termed something of a deathbed confession, in a well-publicized effort, Kentucky State Police went to a site alongside a road near Lexington to search for the remains of Flynn, whose story was featured in Episode 3 of this podcast. Reports at that time indicated that the claims of a dying person were backed up by someone else. So the police took the report seriously and arrived at the scene with sophisticated detection equipment and a backhoe. Once again, nothing was found. And with nearly all of the alleged main actors in her disappearance now dead, there's no likely resolution to that sad story. While it has been easy for people to speculate on Thornton's possible role in that disappearance, to this date, there's never been any proof that he did anything to cause her harm. And those other deaths that swirled around this criminal enterprise... It's important to remember that Thornton likely played no part at all in the assassination of a judge in Nevada. Instead, it's been widely reported that Thornton had become fearful that an association with the crime figures responsible for that murder were too dangerous for his smuggling operation, and that he wanted to end that relationship. And when prosecutor Eugene Berry was murdered in his Florida home by Bonnie Kelly, allegedly at the direction of Henry Vance, Thornton and Vance had parted ways and Thornton was operating solo. The arc of Thornton's life, from that of a somewhat shy and insecure kid to his creating the persona of the warrior and adventure seeker, is not simple speculation. It's a consistent memory of those who knew him both before and after his transformation. And along with his successes and his failures as a criminal, and with his dramatic death in the middle of the night, September 11, 1985, the complex history of Drew Thornton remains compelling decades after his death. One final note on Fly-By-Night's coverage of this story, and it has to do with the missing person case of Melanie Flynn. Recently, a rumor began to circulate that there was a new development in the case. Hopefully there'll be merit to that rumor, but there have been many such rumors in the years since she disappeared. But if someone listening to this show has real, solid information on her disappearance, please contact the Lexington Police Department 
and ask for a detective working on cold cases. Don't contact this podcast or post to Facebook. Take your information to where it can do the most good. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly By Night. Fly By Night is brought to you by Midnight Flyer Media. Theme music is Darker by Henrik Anderson, with sound design and original music by Ave Steitz. Show art is by Aini, with additional design by Ave Steitz. The show is produced, hosted, and edited by Charles Steitz. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review, and subscribe to Fly By Night wherever you get your podcasts. And for photos and more on the key players in each episode, visit flybynightpodcast.com.